0: Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the book of Ruth uh, this morning, chapter 1. And our time together in God's Word uh, will be in Ruth, uh, chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1 this morning. If you do uh, using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 222. By the way, if you do not have a Bible of your own, we certainly love for you to take the Bible that you find in front of you. It'll be our gift to you. We believe it is God's Word, and we trust that God will speak to you through it. In fact, I, I really do encourage you to have a copy of God's Word out uh, this morning. We're going to be working our way through, what let's see, 22 verses. We're just go verse by verse this wonderful story. I think having the Word of God in your lap will help you engage in God's Word and follow along as we consider uh, this wonderful tale that God has before us. It's been good to be here this morning, hasn't it, church? Amen. It's been a great blessing to me as God has gathered us in His honor. So please hear now the Word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Kileon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took two Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malone and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And they said to her, No, we will remain. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For is it exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me? Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Turn after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and they came to Bethlehem. the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word in which we can now consider and set our hearts upon. We pray that you would guide us and lead us as we see you work through hardship for eternal good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Cooper was born in England in 1731. He lived a very difficult life. His mother died when he was only six years old at which his father responded by sending him to boarding school for the rest of his youth. There, Cooper would study law under the urging of his father, but he had no desire for that discipline. In fact, he was drawn towards literature and poetry. He was a melancholy man, full of despair as a teen. He had yet one love, a woman named Theodora. He would court her for seven years until he gained employment, and once he did, he asked her asked her father for her hand in marriage, and even after seven years of a relationship, her father declined. Neither William Cooper or Theodora would ever marry. At that point his battle with depression began to grow and become more and more severe. It was at the age of thirty-two in the seventeen sixties that William Cooper attempted suicide through poison he failed he was promptly committed to saint album's insane asylum now i trust being committed to an insane asylum in the 1760s is not the place you and i want to be and yet it was perhaps the best thing that ever happened to him it was a act of god's providence even in the midst of great hardship for he met a man named nathaniel cotton who served there and spoke to him about a God of grace. In fact, one day, six months into his stay at St. Albans, Cooper found a Bible lying on the bench, left there strategically by Nathaniel. He found Romans chapter 3 and verse 35 and read of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins is that reading that verse, that Cooper began to feel faith grow in his heart and a love for God began to abound. In fact, he would write of that day saying, Immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone down upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the Gospel. He would go on and say, unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Well, I wish I could tell you he promptly marched out of that asylum and lived a full and happy life. But unfortunately, his depression would not be so easily um, uh, dismissed. He would continue to battle it throughout the rest of his life, dying in the year 1800 in a state of silent despair. And yet what's extraordinary about Cooper was that even in his dark times and in his happy times, he continued to trust in God. His pursuit of God was largely manifested in the poetry that he wrote, writing a number of hymns. One of his hymns is in the hymnal in front of you. It is the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, if you know that hymn, and even if you don't, you can just tell by the title, it's somewhat of a sober hymn, isn't it? Written by a very sober man, a serious man, a man acquainted with grief, and yet one who continued to trust in the Lord. Perhaps Cooper's other most famous hymn is entitled God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He would pen, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to earn and scan his work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. I don't know if you could gather from Cooper's poetry that, that he would understand that even in the midst of hardship and sadness, he continued to believe that God was in control. That God, in fact, rides upon the storms. That God is the one who offers us a bud of bitter taste. In fact, He would go on and caution us in that hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. How contrary to typical Western Christianity these ideas are—the the idea that, that God is in control in all things, even in, in great hardship. I think quite often, the, what passes for Christianity today is, is the idea of what is in it for me. Often, people believe not simply because it's true but because they think they're going to get something out of this relationship with God. Of course they will. And yet their, their trust, their, their hope, is that God will bless them if they walk a certain kind of life. I think perhaps we all have that idea somewhere in our heart. We do certain things and God will watch out for us. Right? We'll we have a smooth life. God is going to take care of us if we obey Him. And I would contend that it is partially true. I Read the book of Proverbs. And you will clearly see the way of the fool and the way of the wise and uh, and these paths lead to vastly different destinations. It is partially true. It's not if that we live obedient and God-fearing lives, that life generally may go well for us. But it is only partially true. Because what happens when we actually live that life and then, rather than ease and peace, but hardship happens on us. It was some years ago that, uh, friends, uh, acquaintances of a legger of mine were, served as missionaries in the Middle East, and they left the comforts of Raleigh, North Carolina, their young family, and would travel there to serve God as, on that foreign field in a difficult place. They soon became pregnant and had a son. They named him Noah. And Noah uh, began to struggle rather quickly in his health, fight for his life, uh, a battle he would lose, and he would die about three months of age. I remember... Uh, asking god to spare the life of that child i remember thinking why god do people who who leave ease of america and go to the middle east and say i will follow you i will serve you why is it that they face such calamity and hardship and difficulty when when my family has nothing of this sort and here we are great comfort here in america what is going on what's happening And I think that's in our hearts, isn't it? Somewhere in us, we want to know. I mean, this is, this is typical. I think when, sometimes when people lose a job, perhaps, and they start off strong, and they say, listen, God's gonna carry me through this. I have no worry. And then, three months down the line, they're thinking, okay, God, anytime now, I would like some employment. And then, six months down the line, they're thinking, God, I'm faltering a bit here. I think you perhaps think I'm stronger than I am, and twelve years, twelve months into it, they're thinking, where are you? Where are you? I've been trusting you. Why have you not cared for me? We see this in, in marriage, right? I mean, you've no relationships like this. Uh, these, this couple, just happily in love. And then, the, and the, you know, the, the woman says, this this is the man for me, right? This is my soulmate, that God has appointed this man for me before the foundation of this earth to be my husband. And then five years into it, she's thinking, I may have married the devil, Right? Right? She has been sent from my enemy to destroy me. And they think, "What? this is not what it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to turn out. And this is, we struggle with this, isn't it? We evaluate Christianity quite often by how things are going in our life. And yet the Bible will present a different God to us. The Bible will show us that our God is not our therapist. He is not our life coach. He's not our mother. This is His universe. You are His. And He will rule over it. In fact, He will rule in ways that you would not rule and that I would not rule. As Cooper said, He rules in the storm. I think we would be wise, therefore, to judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. This, to me, seems to be the message of this short book of Ruth, that God rules... In fact, you'll see here, what I find extraordinary about this book is that he's not ruling through armies and kings and war quite often as he does in the Old Testament. You won't find a single priest, a prophet, or a king in this book. You won't find a single miracle, a dream, vision, or a word from God. It's just how does God work in everyday life, especially in tragedy. We get this wonderful behind-the-scenes glimpse of the hidden work of God in the worst of times as we consider this story for survival, this story for love, this story for legacy, as we learn that God rules in our life. And, And this ruling of God is not presented as some naked theological proposition. God rules, deal with it. No, that's not what we see. We see that not only does God rule, but He rules for our good. In fact, God rules to redeem, to buy us out of misery and hardship and sin for Himself. He not only rules over individuals, but He rules through individuals to change the world. As we see, as we'll, when we get to the end of this wonderful chapter, we'll see how God is working through Ruth, well, end of this book rather, to even impact us today. So we're going today begin our study of this little book of Ruth. Four weeks we'll spend in it. We'll try to do a chapter a week, God willing. Pray for me. Um, it has uh, been a challenge this week to fit the sermon in here. In fact, not only do we consider these wonderful truths, I hope you uh, appreciate that this is a wonderful story, right? It'd be worth studying just for the truth, but, but we not only get truth, we have this wonderful story, it's a love story. There is tragedy and loss and despair. There is conflict and ingenuity and compassion and hope, loyalty and romance. There's even a midnight rendezvous in some strange man's bed. I mean, that's in the Bible, right? So men, listen, you don't have to take your wives to a, to a chick flick, right, for the next four weeks. You just bring them to worship service, right? It's here. I mean, there's even a lot of women crying. I mean, you ladies are going to love it. It's just wonderful, right? Um, it's fantastic. In fact, it's not only a love story, it's somewhat of a fairy tale. I appreciate uh, Chris's exhortation for us about um, the, the contrast between God's work and Disney's work, right? The, the, this, this story, you're going to have a damsel in distress, a wealthy prince. You even get an angry stepmother thrown in there. Right? It's a, a wonderful... In fact, you look in the first verse, in the days when the judges ruled, doesn't that kind of sound like once upon a time? I'll tell you, and the book will end. They lived happily forever and ever. And forever and ever in this term is not 80 years, but it is forever and ever and ever. In fact, it is true. So don't, 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 don't take your kids to Disney World, at least for the next month. Just take them to worship service. As we consider not a fairy tale, but truth. God redeeming a people for himself. As he brings the hurting to hope and the despairing into delight. I hope you can find your place in this story. And so let's begin as we consider God this ruling redeemer in Ruth chapter 1. We'll do so in three scenes that this book is presented to us. And we'll consider three truths in those three scenes. The first scene teaches us that God rules through hardship. God rules through hardship. Note verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This is more than just a date and a place for us. This points us to the troubling times that were occurring amongst God's people. As you see that, it is in the time of the judges. You want to know what's going on in Israel in the time of the judges? Just turn one page towards the front of your Bible and you'll see the book of Judges. In fact, you'll see the last verse in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. The Bible says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I would uh, um, suggest to you that this is the sum of the book of Judges. This is a time in which the people did what was right in their own eyes. They had lost their way. They gave themselves over to gross wickedness of the nations that surrounded them. And this was indeed a terrible time. In fact, to make matters worse, if you're back in Ruth, you see it's not only in the time of Judges, but there was a famine in the land. It's somewhat ironic that the famine occurs in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. In other words, the bread basket there in Israel was empty. There's hunger in the house of bread. You and I, of course, don't appreciate what a famine is like. Uh, we we throw our food away when we don't like it or it spoils. We have more than enough. We have food all around us. We can't appreciate the terror that they must have undergone not knowing how I will eat next week or the even more, how will I put food in my children. And they were literally starving, right? We throw that term around like uh, silly people quite often. We, we haven't eaten for two hours and we say, I'm starving, right? I need another Big Mac or whatever it is. They, they are literally starving. They don't know where food is coming. And so we have this credible famine. We also learn from the Old Testament that often famines are not random. They're just not happenstance. There's a number of times in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that God promises to set famine on his people if they sin. We see this in Moses' last speech to Israel called the Song of Moses. He says, if you begin to act like the nations, God will send famine on you until you repent from your sin. Unfortunately, we don't see repentance in this story. Rather, we see flight. They self-induced exiles, you note in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Moab would be to the east of Israel, about 50 miles away. You could stand in Israel and see the mountains of Moab. It would be today what we would call Jordan. Being such close neighbors, Israel and Moab would have a long history together. Unfortunately, none of it was good. When God redeemed Israel out of Egypt by his outstretched arm, they sought to pass through Moab, which would be their distant cousins descended from Lot. They would refuse. In fact, later on, the king of Moab, a man named Balak, would hire a prophet named Balaam in order to curse the Israelites, which God would forbid things got especially bad in numbers 25 as israel wandered and they settled down near moab and they began to um uh, the men began to have sexual relationships with the moabite women The Bible tells us in Numbers 25, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. In fact, God would go on to strike down 24,000 people in His great wrath. And so this is what the women were known for, as seducers, sexually immoral. The Moabites would worship the god Chemosh, which God would call the vile god Chemosh. It was a place known for immorality and idolatry, the sworn enemies of God's people. And it is here to where Elimelech takes his family. It leaves us wonder why. Why there, of all places? We're not told. but I think generally we could probably say he did what was right in his own eyes, as did his contemporaries in that day. In fact, his name, Elimelech, means, my God is king. But it appears that his God is no more his king than he was of his fellow Jews. There was no king in the land. Rather than staying where God had the land that God had given, rather than mourning their sin and trusting God, rather than repenting as they are told to in previous scriptures, he surveyed the situation, didn't he? And he did what he thought was best in his own eyes without any consult with God as he chose the road to Moab. I think there's probably a lesson there for us, isn't it? Quite often, I think when we make those big choices, so what we will do or will we, where will we end up, we consider our future and we think, what will provide me with the most comfort and security? The best chances for a prosperous and successful life. Few are our thoughts given to what God would have us to do, how we can serve him, where we can raise a godly family. Often we make choices that are best in our own eyes, just like a Well, it's there in Moab that tragedy strikes. In fact, it's one blow after another. And you'll notice as we look at these verses, it's all told to us from the perspective of Naomi. The first tragedy hits in verse 3 as we read, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. We don't know what happened. All we are told is that Naomi is now left as a widow with two sons in the country of Moab. Uh, Things get worse in verse 4. These took... Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived about 10 years. And so tragedy grows as her boys marry uh, Moabite women. And you could th- think about the, the, stereotype that she must have had towards these women these sexually immoral women are now living in her home they are now wed to her boys and once again the hand of god falls as we see in verse 5 and both malone and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband we don't know if they died at the same time perhaps one after another but regardless she is left alone no husband no sons it is blow after blow upon her you could think about what that must have been like you could imagine putting yourself in that place as you move your family to moab 10 years ago and you think well this is where i'm supposed to be and my future is is bright you know things are going to go well for me and and you think this is where we're headed and 10 years down the road she has nothing but three graves and unbelievable grief in fact it's worse than what the bible even presents because she has no grandchildren Evidently, these women were barren, at least in time, 10 years of marriage and producing no children. So she has no descendants. In other words, the name of her husband ends. It's over for her, at least in her mind. In fact, it's even worse. You could add to the grief, the danger in which she is now in. How is she going to survive without any provider? And just look around. Think about what that would be like. My love of my life is gone. My sons are gone. And all I'm left is with two Moabitesses. She's lost everything. Her security, her love, her family, her providers, her hope. Of course, we're left as we look at this asking why. And we wonder why such calamity hits. In my research for this message, many have suggested it was because of the sin that they committed. The fleeing to Moab or the the marrying foreign wives which were forbidden. Maybe. Uh, I'm not, well at least the author doesn't draw that connection. So I'm not so quick to make that connection. I think the Bible does tell us that Christians will experience hardship. It does not promise that we will not, that life will be difficulty, and that every hardship is not God's reaction, God's chastisement on sin. That God rules even through hardship. And sometimes God's ways are hard. And these, by the way, are presented as God's ways. This is presented to us, and it will be getting very more clear as we move on that this is what God is working in. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Um, I do want you to understand that the Bible teaches that you are not in control of your life, that God is which is not to say you don't have power or responsibility, but it is to say that God has all power over your life and over Naomi's life. In fact, the Bible teaches us that you were made for God, that you were made to find your delight in God, that you have made to find your satisfaction in Him. In fact, there is a day in which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked upon this earth and He said, I am the bread of life. He would go on to say, whoever comes to me will never hunger. In me, you will never hunger again if you come to me. Which raises the question, how do we come to Jesus? Well, he would go on and tell us, whoever believes in me will never thirst again. We come to Christ, we come to Jesus by believing in Jesus. And there we find what we are made for. I wonder if you've ever considered that. The, the satisfaction which you desire, which you seek everywhere, is actually found only in God. Well, for us Christians here this morning, I want you to see, and even at the very beginning of our study of this book, this is a very real book, isn't it? I mean, this is a very, there's no, no happy spin put on these terrible events. That, that God's goodness is not evident always in the circumstances of our life. And yet the book is not going to pretend that God is out of control in it. As Cooper would say, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. God is in control. I think that gives us great hope, by the way. Because if God is in control, then no matter what trouble you find yourself in, that God is powerful enough to overcome it. And we see him begin to do so in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. There is a barley harvest. In the depth of that despair and distress, there is a glimmer of hope. We'll see this throughout this book. We'll have to look for it. But there's going to be a lot of darkness in it. But occasionally the light of, of, of God's goodness and provision is going to shine through these clouds of hopelessness. And we, we need to look for that. We, behind this frowning providence, God is hiding a smile. Face. And she learns that not only is there food in Bethlehem, but rather clearly from verse 6 that the Lord had provided food. And so we see her response to this news in the second scene as we learn that God's rule is worthy of trust. Notice verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and went on their way to return to the land of Judah. You can imagine that the welfare programs in Moab were not very generous in that day. An elderly, widowed alien living amongst her enemies would not survive long. So she goes home. She doesn't go alone. Uh, She goes with her two daughter-in-laws. Now, there's a custom in this day from what I understand is that you would walk departing guests down the road for a bit. So perhaps they're just fulfilling their custom or perhaps there's a greater commitment. But we do know that Naomi won't have them walk too far for she says to them in verse eight, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest uh, each of you in the house of her husband. So she says, listen, girls, you have your whole life ahead of you go home. Go home, get married, find a husband, and, and live this life. Go back to your moms. She must have thought, I trust, how can I care for them? I, I'm not even sure how I'm going to care for myself. How am I going to provide for them? In fact, how is it going to be like if I show up in Bethlehem with a couple Moabite women? How are they going to take that? No, they should go. They should go back to their people and to their home. Go home, my daughter, she says. Well, you will see in verse 9 that this is more than just a kind of a goodbye and God bless you. You can imagine what they went through. In fact, we get a glimmer of that as we read on. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. It's a terrible scene, isn't it? There's just a lot of emotion there. Are these three women on the roadside just wailing and crying and tears and snot going everywhere. And it's just this big, terrible mess, right? It's big, loud commotion, right? This great hardship. And can you imagine the path that they have walked together and the hardship that they must have endured? And they finally compose themselves and they begin to protest with Naomi in verse 10. She says, and they say, no, we will return with you to your people. We're not, we're going with you. We're, go- we're not going to leave you alone. This time Naomi will respond with a second argument. This time not with the life they can have in Moab, but with the life that they will find with her. Or in fact, the life that she cannot give her. For we see in verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have a hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Right? This is kind of uh, her argument. So what can I give you? I have nothing for you. Even if I had a husband this very night, which I don't because he's dead. But if I did, let's just imagine. Even if I got pregnant this night, and even if it was a son, are you going to wait till he's of age in order to marry him? No, you have only one chance. Don't you see? Go home. There is your hope. With thee, you have nothing. I give you nothing. Well, she will conclude her argument in verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Almost seems as if she's saying my God is not worth following. He has dealt bitterly with me. His hand has fallen on me. If you stick with me, you will end up bitter too. Well, the speech like that, you know what you get? More crying. As you see in verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Once again, weeping and wailing in their lives. Their lives are ruined. Their hopes unfulfilled. This unexpected sorrow. I don't know if you've ever met a family like this. I certainly haven't. A family with three widows and no children and very little hope for tomorrow. Well, Orpah, one of her daughter-in-laws, has heard all she needs. As we see in verse 14, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She goes off, kind of sad for Orpah. I don't know what happened to her. Maybe she met Mr. Wright and had a home full of children, perhaps. But what she missed was God. So close. She's right there. Like people passing through church, so close. They hear the gospel, and then they go off on their way. Orpah returns home, but not so for Ruth. For we read at the end of verse 14, Ruth clung to her. She held on to her. She was not going to let Naomi face her future alone. In fact, that word clung is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when it's speaking of that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He'll clung to his wife, if I could put it that way. And so she is clinging to her mother. She's saying, despite this future in which you have painted for me, we are going to do this together. We are going to go forward together. Well, Naomi's just going to try a third time to persuade Ruth to return home, as we see in verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And so she says, go back, leave me. But Ruth will have none of it. In fact, she will give us one of the most powerful speeches, perhaps in all the Old Testament, as we read in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I don't know if you can hear the orchestra music swelling in the background in this this powerful commitment, this the intensity of Ruth clinging to her. She looks her into the eyes and says, "I am committed to you. Do not try to talk me out of this. I don't know what's going to happen to us, but we are going to do it together. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. Now, don't forget, she's saying this to her mother-in-law. Right? Don't tell me that's not a work of God, right? I mean, so I am with you. I am clinging to you." I am going to follow you from wherever you go. The sacrifice is profound. She's not simply moving to someplace less pleasant like from Western Loudon to D.C. That would be a great sacrifice, wouldn't it? But this is far greater right? She's leaving her family and her country and security to a place of unknown. She's embracing a life of widowhood and childlessness. She says, I'll never leave you. If she were to get married, at least in her mind, she would have to leave Naomi. This is something she has promised never to do. In fact, she says, where you die, I will die. That is, even if Naomi would die a month from now, she is not going back to Moab. She will be buried in the place where Naomi is buried, even calling a curse upon herself. May God strike me down, she says, if I would renege upon this vow. It is an astonishing sacrifice for she has nothing to gain and everything to lose what's even more amazing is this pledge i don't know if you saw it right there in the middle of verse 16 or i guess the end of verse 16 your god will be my god she says she embraces yahweh as her god even though naomi had just said he has dealt very bitterly with me right naomi's experience with god has been bitterness ruth's experience as well And yet she chooses this God to be her God, even with Naomi's anti-evangelism. Do you caught that in verse 15? Go return to your God, she says. My God is no good. He's not worth following. And yet she committed to him, isn't she? Perhaps she learned of him from her husband before he died. We don't know. What we do know is despite this bitter life, despite the hardship in which she faced, she is committed to God. She somehow is able to see beyond these circumstances as she walks by faith with this God into the unknown. I'm committed to That God would raise up Ruth's in Hamilton Baptist Church. Ruth's and Randy's who have this humble devotion to God. That no matter what his providence brings upon me, we will walk with him. We will be bold in our devotion to him, extreme in our sacrifice to him. That we will make the world look at us and say, what are you doing? This is what Ruth teaches us, doesn't she? This adventure is faith. I trust you, God, to guide me today and for all eternity. In fact, I don't want you to just look at Ruth, but look at Ruth's God there. You see how he is providing for Naomi, right, in a way that Naomi didn't even understand. To her, Ruth is this burden, right? And yet he is sending Ruth with her. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The Bible teaches us that God often begins to meet our needs even before we know we have the needs. In fact, I think many of us would testify that we didn't even know we needed salvation. I certainly didn't. I didn't know I needed a Savior, and yet God was already drawing him to me, drawing me to him. Perhaps that's why you're here this morning. That God even this morning is meeting a need that you were unaware that you had, a need to know Jesus and to trust in him. Well, we see here God working in Ruth's life and blessing Naomi, that Ruth has this incredible commitment to her, this pledge to her, I will go with you wherever you go, I will never leave you. How does Naomi respond to that sacrifice? What does she say? Well, she says nothing. Note verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Literally, she stopped talking. No, thank you. No, we'll do this together. No, I'm glad I, we don't have to do this alone. When she realized she would not be persuaded, she just stopped talking to her. In case you think I'm being too harsh, let's consider scene three. As we hear Naomi speak once again. It's here in this third scene that we learn that God rules for your good. That God rules for your good. We pick up the story in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? So she returns after 10 years in Moab. And one day, she just out of the blue, just Tuesday afternoon, perhaps walks into Bethlehem. And, and here Naomi is returned. She is returning with nothing. She left with a husband and two sons. She comes home with none of that and no grandchildren, no wealth. All she brings with her is a Moabite daughter-in-law. You can imagine, I trust, therefore the buzz that must have been created in this little town as Naomi has returned. Is this Naomi? Is that Naomi? Who is that? And people come up to her and say, Naomi, is that you? Have you come home? Well, I trust they were surprised in her response as we see in verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I'm not Naomi anymore, which means pleasant or lovely. I'm Mara. Which means bitter. Why is she bitter? Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, at this point, we may not have a nice opinion about Naomi right now. She seems to us like a very bitter woman. But let's remember what she has gone through. I mean, she has lost her husband, lost her sons. She has no children. All her labors were for nothing. Ruth, this, the book of Ruth is very much kind of a little Job, isn't it, in many ways. As we see this, this woman struggling, no doubt, she's having difficulty. And once again, I appreciate the honesty of the Bible. I'm struck by it. that The Bible does not try to present God's followers as these unreal people, these paragons in which we follow without question. No, they have troubles, and those troubles are re- real. In fact, I wonder if some of you can identify with Naomi. Maybe the circumstances in your life are bitter, Maybe it seems like calamity after calamity falls you. Maybe the pain does not leave you. Maybe you think, yeah, I, I could relate to that. I could understand that pain and that doubt and that hardship. And I love the honesty of Scripture. as it, she, The Bible presents her this way. But I also love the, the truth of Scripture. In fact, I, I, I don't know what you think about her statements. They're, they're kind of extreme. They're hard. But do you agree with her? The Lord has been bitter against me. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. What do you think about those statements? To be honest, I kind of love that theology. I think it's right on. I, I think whether we call it ordain or cause or permit or allow... I believe the Bible presents our God as a sovereign God. I believe that not one detail in this book, which I think will be presented rather clearly in the chapters to come, is outside God's providence. It is not presented as chance that nothing happens outside the sovereign control of God. In fact, Job experienced tragedy, perhaps even exceeding that of Naomi, and he would say in Job 72, The Lord Almighty has made me taste bitterness of soul. This is the same man who would say the Lord gives and the Lord, what is it? Takes away. This is the same man. shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And both times he made those statements. The author of Job said, and Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, he is not attributing God that which is not from God. It is God who is a sovereign God. And he rules over everything the Bible presents. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I don't know if you ever noticed the fact when hardship comes upon people, whether they're followers of Jesus or perhaps deny the existence of any God, they nevertheless have this instinct. It seems like this reaction to ask, why? Why? As if they assume there's some purpose behind it. Well, I think that's part of the image of God in us. I would suggest to you that Scripture teaches there is a purpose behind it. That God is in control, and sometimes he doesn't reveal his purpose, but nevertheless he is in control. That, that, that God is ruling over Naomi's life. He will rule over nations. He rules in the White House. He rules in your house. I've read some commentaries who say, look how weak Naomi's faith is here. I'll take this faith any day of the week over what I think passes for Bibleless, sentimental, weak faith that says God's not in control God is somewhere else. This snuck up on God, that God wishes he could change it but can't. I think that's just totally devoid of Scripture. I appreciate her faith. She calls out that God is in control. God is not caught off guard. He is not shocked by events. He is the Almighty, as she affirms twice. He is El Shaddai. He rules. And I think the rulership of God, the sovereignty of God, should be the rock upon which we stand in the midst of hardship and trouble. The question that the book of Ruth raises is not, is God in control? The question that it raises, is God good? That's what she's asking. Are people kinder than God? I mean, here's Ruth, right, sticking by Naomi's side. What about God? Where is he? Why is it calamity after another? And Naomi certainly doubts the goodness of God, does she not? She is unlike Joseph, who, acquainted with grief himself, nevertheless said, what you intended for evil, my God intended for good. She can't see it. She can't see Ruth standing right next to her, can she? We see it. I mean, when she begins to gripe, our eyes are drawn to Ruth, aren't they? And we, I imagine how much she must have stuck out in that, in that town, a Moabite walking down the street with the whispers and the stairs, and then to stand by Naomi and hear, I came here full, and now I've, I've left here full, but rather, and now I come back with nothing. Right? Nothing. She hears her mother-in-law say, she is nothing. Empty. And we're thinking, I don't know, if you think, really? Nothing? Do you not see what God is doing? In fact, if you read on in verse 22, you see, so Naomi returned and Ruth, what is it? The Moabite. We already know that, but the the author wants to drive that home, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You see once again, another glimmer of God's hope that God is providing for her. The barley harvest is here, but she can't see it. All she can see is her pain. All she can feel is her anguish. This is what happens in the midst of hardship. We become self-absorbed. We have trouble seeing what God is doing. She, she, she can't see the work of God by sending Ruth, by sending the barley harvest, by bringing her home, that he is working in her life, even in the midst of her complaints, even in the midst of her griping, that her sin and her complaint will not stop God from working. You know why? Because sins are forgiven through Jesus. And sins will not prevent God from working good in your life. In fact, he has dealt bitterly with someone, hasn't he? Namely, Jesus as he had him drink the cup, the bitter cup of the wrath of God, that we, when we are sinners like Elimelech and wander off into a land of idolatry, he will forgive our sins, that we, when we are like Ruth, aliens outside of God's people who are owed nothing from God but wrath are actually welcomed home, that we, when we are gripers like Naomi, might still receive our Father's gracious providence. God works despite our sin. He works through hardship. This is the testimony of Scripture, whether it be the barrenness, of Sarah or Joseph's enslavement or Israel being outnumbered or David's exile or Daniel's in the lion den or Christ crucified. God is working for your good. No matter what hardships you find yourself in, no matter where you find yourself today, follower of Jesus, I tell you from the authority of God's Word, our God rules and He rules for your good. He does. He's doing so today. This is the lesson from Ruth. This is what we will study in the next four weeks, that God rules to redeem. He is not done. He is working. And we may, not, he, we may not see the outcome soon. We may not see it until he pushes back the darkness and you and I walk upon a new earth with Jesus on our side and all of the redeemed. It may wait till that. But I don't think God is waiting for everything to, for the end. I think he's working today. I think even if you're in the midst of hardship, there's got to be a Ruth standing by your side. There's a barley harvest out there, and yet we become so blind that we miss it. We become like toddlers who play with a toy for a couple of minutes and then throw it down and say, I want more. Give me something else. And we become blind to the, the blessings of God piled up around us. They are everywhere, and we need eyes to see it. We need to look for what God is doing in our lives. We need to help others to do the same. I think such faith will transform you. If you trust God in the midst of hardship, that, that, that you will become like Ruth, this indomitable joy, this courage to walk into whatever the future holds because she knows God holds the future. If we truly believe that God is sovereign and good, we will have this freedom. We will go to places like the Philippines and teach missionary kids because we believe God is good and worth following. We, we will take our family from the comforts of Raleigh and we will move to Boston, there to plant a church knowing that we won't receive a penny from that church. We'll have to pay our own way, but we'll go anyways. And when that ministry's over, we will wait for God to open another door, turn down other ministry opportunities that he opens to the right one. And we will even move our family to a place called Hamilton, that we may make disciples of teenagers and equip families and spread the fame of Jesus Christ. Of course, I speak of our brother, Josh. And Josh, we're very delighted that you are here now. Josh, of course, has been with us for about six weeks, and uh, I'm just, uh, I, speak, I say that, brother, that I'm, I'm delighted that you're here, not as, your, not as a co pastor here, uh, but as a father. And I certainly look forward to the ministry that you will have in my children's lives in the years to come. And Josh has received his ordination into the pastoral ministry, and we understand, as Scripture, I think, clearly teaches, that there is no difference between the office of elder and pastor. We've considered this a number of times in the past year. And so, we, as we close our time this morning, uh, we want to install Josh as an elder here at Hamilton Baptist Church. So, Josh, I'm going to ask you if you will come down, and I'm going to meet you here, and I'm going to ask all the men who have uh, been ordained into uh, the office of elder if you will come down, and we're going to lay on hands on Josh and and pray for him, Um, and and we're going to do that. We're going to have Josh kneel here, and we're going to pray for him, and as we install him into this office. I hope you understand that this, I think is important time for our church. Um, I hope that you as why we pray with Josh, that you will be in prayer for him. You'll be in prayer for our youth and our children. You'll be in prayer for our families. You'll be in prayer that God will equip him to meet the needs, uh, before him and that God would bless him with fruitfulness. And so Josh, I'm going to ask you to kneel. We got a pillow here for you, old man. And, um, (laughs) and we'll have you do that. And, um, Um, Let us uh, start our time of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you rule. We thank you that you ruled 3,000 years ago, and you rule today in Hamilton Baptist Church. You rule in the life of every person here, and you are ruling, too, for good. Help us to trust you. Help us to see your goodness all around us. And we thank you for our brother Josh. Help him, we pray in Jesus' name.